0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, we're getting back into our study of this book this morning as we continue to look to build for the future, so we're, we'll be back back in it. Before Christmas time rolled around, we had made it through chapter 4, uh, finished up chapter 4. Then we took a little break from the study for about six weeks as we did some other things through Christmas and through the new year. Uh, but we're back at it today, and, and, and I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about what God has for us today. And I, now I'll, I'll, I'll admit to you that when I first started studying this section of Scripture, I wasn't all that excited. Um, I think Brenton and I were at lunch last week, and I think I even told him, you know, there's not really much in this, these verses. Um, turns out I was wrong. Surprise, surprise. I just needed to quit using my own logic and, and let the Holy Spirit lead me. And I believe he did. Um, there's some cool stuff in, in the verses we're going to look at this morning. And, and hopefully we'll learn something from the Lord today. Now, um, I'll, I'll warn you, some of, it, some of it might sting a little bit. Uh, but let me remind you of the, the you know, popular saying, no pain, no gain. Right? No pain, no gain. And next week's going to feel better. Don't worry, we'll do it every week, but um, we're trying to make spiritual gains through what God is teaching us in Nehemiah, and sometimes that means we leave a little sore. That's okay, it's all right, just don't quit, keep working out, it's good for you, it's good for me. Um, Today's going to be good for us if we listen and apply uh, what you hear. But before we get into all that's in front of us today, let's, let's do a, a bit of a review. We'll do it quickly, but just a review since we've been away from this book for a little while. So our main, the name of the book's is Nehemiah. He's, he's obviously the, the main character of this book. And, and what we find when we start this book in chapter 1 is Nehemiah was working as a cupbearer for the king of Persia in the palace of Sushan. And when he's working in that job, he gets a report from his brother, that Jerusalem was in ruins. And so Israel had gone through their time of, of captivity, 70 years in captivity. They're still under Gentile oppression. And things in, in Jerusalem and in the holy city were bad. And, and when Nehemiah heard that report and he received that report, he was burdened. He was burdened by it. And because of that burden, he sought out the Lord. And he asked the Lord if he could be a part of the solution. He wanted to help rebuild the city. And rebuild, in particular, the wall that surrounds the city and the gates that are a part of of that wall. And in chapter 2, Nehemiah gets King Artaxerxes to to buy into his burden. And the king allows Nehemiah to leave his post as his cupbearer and to go back to Jerusalem for a time and rebuild. And and the king even agrees to pay for it. It's, it's, It's a cool story. And so Nehemiah heads back. He surveys the land, he sees all that's in front of him and, and in front of the people of Israel, and, and then, he, then he starts kind of rallying the troops, and he tells them that it's time. It's time to rebuild, it's, it's time to quit living in the ruins that they were living in, and they needed to stop being a reproach or a disgrace to the Lord because of the condition that that city had fallen into, it was God's chosen city. And you know, and there's so many similarities in our lives in our homes and our church with those things. And in chapter three, they begin the process. They, they begin rebuilding the wall and the gates, and we look at those 10 gates that surround the city and how they picture the things that we need in and out of our lives, if, if we're going to be builders for the Lord, if we're going to be Nehemiah's for the Lord. And during that process of rebuilding, what we find is, is not everything, goes perfectly smooth, right? Because, as 1 Corinthians sixteen nine says, for a great door and effectual is open unto me and there are many adversaries. And we find that to be true in our lives as well. When God opens doors and, and we begin serving the Lord and working for him, man, the, our enemy, Satan wants to stop it. And adversaries pop up and Nehemiah faces adversaries and, and like I said, we obviously do as well. And this church has adversaries. You may not even know it, but your home has adversaries. Sometimes those adversaries may even look like friends. But they're enemies to to the work that the Lord wants to do in and through you and your family. And when Nehemiah deals with those adversaries, he starts by taking it to the Lord. We see this continual, this consistent aspect of prayer through this book, and and Nehemiah goes to the Lord, and then we see through chapter 4 kind of that process of defeating those external foes, and in order to do that, you have to understand priorities, you have to be able to to keep your focus where it needs to be, and not get distracted by a lot of the things that are going on around you, and a lot of things the enemy's trying to do, And, and what we see is that Israel was successful in this up to this point. Right, Nehemiah puts a plan together, he sets watches and shifts, he divides the laborer and the laborers, and the work continued. That was chapter four. But what we're going to see today, as we begin chapter five, is that the devil never stops his attacks against God's people and God's work. It doesn't matter if you experience some success in the spiritual warfare that you face, The devil isn't going to stop. Now, he may change his tactics. He may change his approach. But he won't stop. He will continue to look for an opportunity to get a foothold in your life, in your home, and in this church. Because, again, I want you to think about this for a minute. Everything we've seen up to this point, up through chapter 4, it's really been a success. It's it's all gone, Nehemiah and the people of Israel's way. Nehemiah got favor with the king. All the people joined in on the task. The opposition came, but the work didn't suffer. They just kept building. They kept praying. They kept watching. It's it's been pretty cool to see, and and a lot we can learn from that. But in chapter 5, we begin to see a change. And, and, And the change is this. The devil... Changes the way he he, he's attacking, because so far all the opposition has come from the outside. It was the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Ashdodites, the Arabians. It was Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem. These and, and, and all these guys from the outside, and and because of that, out exterior attacks, all the people of Israel rallied together. But in chapter five, the opposition is the people of Israel. It's on the inside. And this is the first real sign of trouble. So what we're going to see in our passage this morning are the real risk of building. That's the title of today's message. And that's not to say that the opposition that we've looked at in the previous chapters that that it wasn't dangerous, that it wasn't a risk, that it wasn't real, it certainly was. But I do want you to know that when attacks come from within the family, That's a different level. And that's something more dangerous. It's exactly what Paul warned the Ephesian elders about as he was leaving Ephesus, after he had left Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. Paul says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, Not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And you see, Paul wasn't warning them about opposition from without as much as he was warning them about opposition within. Because that's the real risk to building. And Nehemiah has to deal with the same thing. And today, we're going to see what those risks are. Next week, we're going to look and see how, how Nehemiah handles those risks. And, and there's some good stuff in, in that. But, but this is important enough today that we're, we're going to analyze the risks by themselves. And here's why we're going to take the time to do that. I, I've told you before how the book of Nehemiah lines up prophetically with where we are at in history today. And so the risks that we're going to see in our text this morning, I believe, are the greatest risks that we are facing today in this day and age. They're the greatest risk to building for God's glory in your home and in this church. And these are things that families and churches face all the time. So let's look at it together, Nehemiah chapter five. We're gonna read verses one through five. And the Bible says, and there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brother and the Jews. For there were that said, we, our sons and our daughters are many, therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, we have mortgaged our lands, vineyards and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute and that upon our lands and vineyards, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children is as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage. Our sons and our daughters to be servants. Some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them. For other men have our lands and vineyards. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask you to be with us this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit uh, teach us exactly what it is that we need this morning. I pray that, that we all have ears to hear and that we're sensitive to, to what you want to do uh, in and through us this morning. We pray that that your word has free reign in our lives, that we hear it as that, that we hear it as words from you, as the word of God. And Lord, I pray that, that it then does the work that only it can do to change us, and your spirit convinces and convicts us of where we need change and And, Lord, that we take the steps to do it. And and so, Lord, I pray that everything that is said this morning is true to your word. I pray that it is honoring and glorifying to you. And, Lord, I pray that, that again, that that you would work amongst us um, and and continue to mold us into your image and into builders for you. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we see here at the beginning of chapter 5 is that in the midst of of a great work for a great God, there was a great cry. A great cry of the people and their wives. And, 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 and I'm, not any jo- I'm not making any jokes about the wives being involved in the great cry of that. In fact, I'm, I mean that. In fact, it's an important piece. Because especially when we get to dealing with kids and stuff, men should listen to your wives. Your wives have good insights. Many times, and, and this is one. The wives had a cry for a specific reason. And, and many times, you know, we don't, we don't listen like we should, and we just keep going on with our life. So, so that's, that's an important aspect to the wives uh, there at the beginning of chapter 5. And again, this great cry wasn't because of anything that Sanballat and Tobiah, Gresham, the, all of the enemies were doing. It was against their brethren, the Jews, So this was opposition within. And that's a real problem. And here's why it's a real problem. It's a a real problem because that affects unity. You see, up to this point, the, the outside enemies have been attacking, but there was great unity amongst the workers. There was great unity in the camp. Let me remind you of of a few verses. They they got off to a great start, unified in what was before them. Nehemiah 2.18 says, Then I, Nehemiah, told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he has spoken unto me. And they said, all the people, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. And then all of chapter 3 is dedicated to describing how the workers were working together, side by side to get the job done. And even when the enemies show back up in chapter 4, look at what verse 6 says. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together under the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. And verse 21, so we labored in the work, and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. You see, there had been great unity. In fact, because the enemies were coming against them, they had rallied together. To, to fight back and, and to keep the, the, the job going. But that unity was now being threatened because of the environment and because of the sinful actions of some amongst them. So historically, you can probably see what's happening here. In verse 3, we, we read that there was a, a dearth in the, in the land. That just means famine. There was a famine in the land, and it was difficult to find food. So the people were hungry and they have families that they're trying to provide for. And in order to do that, they're having to mortgage their lands and their vineyards and their houses so that they have the ability just to buy corn and to and to pay their taxes. That's what the king's tribute is in verse 4. So they're having to buy food because they can't grow it themselves. And so they're, they're having to mortgage lands to be able to, to keep their families alive, the king is asking for taxes, the king's tribute is, is, is coming due, and things are bad. It's so bad, it gets to the point that some families are having to sell their children into servanthood or slavery just to survive. But, but here's what makes it worse. This is what makes it even worse. It was amongst themselves. Because there were other Jews, richer Jews, who were taking advantage of this situation. And the poor Jews were mortgaging their lands and their homes to their brethren. But their brethren were charging huge interest. We see that in verse 7. We'll get to that next week. Nehemiah says, ye exact usury. That is just interest on a loan. So the people, just to make it in practical terms, the people are taking out second mortgages, so to speak, on their homes, and payment was coming due, and they couldn't pay it. And the solution was to, was to give their children as collateral and their children to work off their debt. And so it's, it's led to a really bad situation, as you can imagine, a great cry. So historically, that's what was going on, and it was, it was putting the building project at risk. Now, there's also a doctrinal application to this passage that I just want to mention very quickly, and it relates to the Jews in the tribulation. As part of the work of the Antichrist. And and there's a lot of passages that that you can see that compare, but but I want to show you one in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, you see a little bit of what the Jews are going to be dealing with economically under the reign of the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 6, verse 5 says And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld and lo a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and a measure of barley for a penny. And see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger. And with death, and with the beasts of the earth, and so there's a there's a historical application of exactly what has happened. There's a doctrinal application that will yet to occur in the tribulation, but there is a spiritual application for us today that I want you to see, and it's what we've been doing through this entire study, and I and I think today is particularly relevant to our world, and the risk that these Jews were facing in Nehemiah's day really. Break down into three categories, and like I already told you, I believe them to be the three primary risks we're facing today. And I know that's a big statement, but but I think you'll see why as we go through it. Uh, but there, are th- these are the things that keep Christian families and biblical churches from fulfilling the mission that God has for them. And the first thing that you see happening, that you you see historically in in Jerusalem and in Nehemiah's day, and that you see happening in our world today in Laodicea and in Laodicean churches is the starvation of the flock. The starvation of the flock. You see, in Jerusalem, in 444 B.C., there was a famine in the land. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. There was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews, for there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said we have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. So there are a couple problems in in these verses as it relates to the famine. First of all, very simply, there was a lack of corn. There wasn't enough to go around. Verse 2 said that the Jews were having a bunch of kids. And they couldn't keep up with feeding them. There was a famine. The rain wasn't coming. They they couldn't grow as much corn as they needed to grow. And they were having to go to other parts and buy it. And so there was there was a a great famine that was causing this. And can I tell you, I I think certainly throughout the world, but I, I know for sure that in America in 2022, there's also a famine in the land. And the truth is that many of God's people are starving. But they're not starving for physical corn. They're starving for spiritual corn. You see, in the Bible, corn is a picture of the Word of God. We find that in in places like Psalm 78, verse 24, that says, "...and it had rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them the corn of heaven." This is, he's, he's talking about obviously what God did uh, during that time of wilderness by feeding them with manna. Exodus chapter 16, you can see all of the great, uh, how manna is, is one of the great pictures of the word of God. And here God is calling manna the corn of heaven. Also when Paul was talking to Timothy, he compared the word of God to corn in First Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honors, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. That was a quote from Deuteronomy 25.4. Paul does, uses this same quote in First Corinthians 9.9. 9. He quotes Deuteronomy 25.4 again, and, and, and so you see in those the connection of corn to God's word. And for many churches and for many believers out there today, they are starving when it comes to God's word. And they're either not being fed by their pastor or they're not feeding themselves. Many times both of those things are happening. There's starvation amongst the flock of God today. Amos prophesied this day was coming, and in, in Amos 8.11, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. A day has already come for the nation of Israel, but I believe the church of God is in that day today. And the people of God are starving because we are ignoring verses like Matthew 4.4. 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And we're ignoring that verse. So we're not taking the time to feed ourselves. We're not taking the time to come and listen and, and hear and learn from God. And that's because we don't love God's word, like Job did when he said in Job 23:12, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And the obvious question that comes out of that is, you know, how many days, you know, if you look back over the past, you know, two weeks, since January 1st, how many days have you missed feeding yourself physically? Okay. How many days have you missed feeding yourself spiritually in that same time frame? There's a famine in the land of hearing God's word, and it's because we don't love it. As individual Christians, as leaders of our homes, as churches, we need to take seriously the nourishment that we receive from God's word. Are you feeding yourself, or are you starving? How about your family? Are you coming here and getting fed? Or are you neglecting the opportunity to do so? Don't be responsible for your own or for your family's spiritual starvation. But there's another problem related to the corn that we find in this verse. So, so there was a lack of corn. We just talked about that. But secondly, the, the corn that was available, it, it had to be bought. And again, they couldn't grow enough on their own and so they had to go to outlying areas and they had to buy corn. And I understand from a historical marketplace perspective that's not necessarily inappropriate, although the Jews did have some responsibilities under the law to care for their poor brethren. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 11 says, "'If there be among you a poor man, one of thy brethren,' Within any of thy gates in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart saying, "The seventh year, the year of release, that was something that God put in under the law, is that is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother." And Thou givest him not, and he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him, because that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works, and in all that thou puttest thy hand unto. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Wherefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in the land. In thy land. So they they did have some responsibility to provide. But but again, I want to look at this from a a spiritual perspective, and I want you to know that God always gives His word freely, and we should too. James 1, for example, verses 17 and 18 says, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Right? Every good gift, a gift is free. A gift is free. And And then, what is the gift he's comparing it to here? Of his own will beget he us with the word of truth that we should be kind, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And God gives us, we're born again by the word of God, and he gives us that freely. And he gives us his word freely for us to receive. And there are two times in the Bible. That, that you find people having to buy corn. And both times, corruption is involved. W- once here in Nehemiah, the richer Jews were taking advantage of the poorer Jews, and they were forcing unlawful things so that the poorer Jews had to buy corn to survive. We're gonna lo- we'll look at that in just a second. But the other time you see it when when people had to buy corn was in Genesis chapter forty-two. So this was another time of famine. And the world had to buy corn. And guess where they had to go to buy it? Genesis chapter 42, verse 3 says, And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. And Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world. And the corruption contained therein. And you might be thinking, yeah, but wait a second. That story in Genesis 42 is when Joseph was in Egypt. How was that corrupt? Well, the answer is Joseph wasn't corrupt. In fact, as a picture of Christ, Joseph gave his brothers their money back and even gave them extra corn for free. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 25 says, Then Joseph commanded to fill their his brethren, their sacks with corn, and to restore every man's money into his sack, and to give them provision for the way. And thus did he unto them. But Egypt. And Pharaoh expected money for their corn. And let me just tell you, there is a world out there, even some churches out there, and they want you to pay for the corn. And that's corruption. And, and I'm, I'm just not gonna take the time to go everywhere I could with this. But just know that when Egypt Is involved in God's word and there's a buck to be made from it, it is corrupt. This is not how God intended. And when you buy a corrupt word, you're still gonna starve. It's exactly what was happening in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. They were still starving, even even having to buy corn. Same in Genesis 42, the world had to come to Egypt to buy corn and the world was starving. And again, I could hang out there for a while, but I'm not going to. You just need to know that the first real risk of building for the Lord in your home and in this church is starvation. Feed from God's word, God's pure, preserved words. And if you don't, you won't be able to build for his glory. It's just not possible. If you're not willing to feed yourself, if you're not willing to come here and be fed. I mean, you'll only go as far as you can go, and that's not very far. But that isn't the only risk we see in this passage. We have have the famine affecting the people. But we also have unscrupulous individuals treating their brethren improperly. All for personal gain. And that brings us to our second real risk in building for the Lord within our homes and within this church. And that is selfishness in the fellowship. Selfishness in the fellowship. Look back at verse 4. There were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute, that's a tax, and, and that upon our lands and vineyards. And it's not part of our main text this morning, but look at verse 7. Nehemiah speaking and says, Then I consulted it within myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one is brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And and we talked about this earlier, but the the richer Jews, those rulers and nobles, they were taking advantage of their brethren by, by, by letting them mortgage their homes and their lands and their vineyards and charging interest and expecting payment. Now, this was in direct violation of the law. In Deuteronomy 23 verses 19 and 20 it says, "Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Under a stranger thou mayest; you can charge that, you can charge interest. Under a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but under thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury." That the Lord thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to in the land, whither thou goest to possess it. So, you could loan your brother, in that context, as the Jews, you could loan your brother money and you could expect payment back. You just weren't to charge interest. And that's exactly what they were doing here. And they were violating the law and they did it because they were selfish. They took advantage of an opportunity because they only cared about themselves and their own personal gain what they could gain from it. And and let me just tell you, the quickest killer to unity within a home or a church is selfishness. When everybody just wants what they want, or they make decisions based upon what they can get out of it, you're asking for trouble. And I promise you, the Lord is not glorified selfishness within a fellowship, within a church, within a home, it kills building for the Lord because it comes about you and not him. It's your kingdom and not his. And, and I'm sure you are aware, but the Bible has a lot to say about selfishness and the sin that it is. It's the complete opposite of the ultimate example that Christ set for us, which is selflessness. Selflessness. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That was his example. It was selflessness. It was Paul's desire for his own life because of it. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 32 and 33, give none offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God even as I please all men in all things. Not seeking mine own profit but the profit of many that they might be saved. But that, That's how you build. You can't think of yourself. You can't think of what you can get from it. You have to be thinking of others. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. For we preach not ourselves But Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, this is what we think of ourselves, your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul said, man, none of this is about me. We don't preach ourselves. I'm not trying to build my own kingdom. All I want to do is be a servant to Christ so that that others can see Jesus through me. And listen, you need to understand this in the context of selfishness in the fellowship, because there are people out there and they exist in our homes and and in churches and in this church and and they're pretending to represent Christ, but they're actually preaching themselves and listen, that's devilish I mean, you know that I mean that's what Satan did that's Isaiah fourteen that's pride and so So, so just as a warning, you know, be wary of guys who always think they know how to do something better and that everything is wrong, and and if, if they could do it, it'd be better. I guarantee you that. Are they preaching Christ or are they just preaching themselves? Are they trying to build up or tear down? This is a real risk. Listen, we need people that strengthen the church, that strengthen the home. Builders, edifiers, that's what edifying means, to build. And that's exactly what true men and women of God do. They build churches, they build lives, they build homes, they build families. It's part of why God gave us pastors, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, for the building up of the body of Christ. But it's not only pastors who are to do it. We're all to edify. We should all take part in building into the life of someone else. Our children, our disciples, our friends. We should all be doing it. So listen, what you must understand is that there are those who build and there are those who tear down through selfishness. There are those who are selfless and though are those who are selfish, only looking for personal gain. And listen, sometimes differentiating between the two can be a little tricky. Especially if you're only looking at the outside. In Romans 16, Paul told the church to be careful about this. In verse 17 and 18, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division, that tear down and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they are such, for they are such, serve not our Lord jesus christ but their own belly and by good words and fair speeches it sounds right they deceive the hearts of the simple and simple in verse 18 it 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 doesn't mean dumb it means innocent it means unsuspecting so be careful and 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 look out for others and look out for yourself too it's it's easy to get caught up in selfishness without even realizing it but don't get caught up in the trap of thinking too highly for yourself, I, I know this world tells you to do that, but don't buy into it. And and I've sh- there's there's three verses I share them regularly because because they're important to me because I I keep them on my heart. But so I don't think too highly of myself all the time. It's good for me to remind it of how Paul described himself. First Corinthians fifteen nine, he described himself as the least of the apostles. In Ephesians three eight. He describes himself as less than the least of all the saints. And then in 1 Timothy 1.15, he he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all expectation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That's how Paul described himself. And listen, those aren't sad verses. So that is not Paul having poor self-esteem to his own detriment. And the world might tell you that, but that's wrong. That right there, that is victory in the life of Christ. I Man, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, that's humility and selflessness modeled after Christ, because his strength is made perfect in weakness. When I am weak, then is he strong? That's what we want to show forth. And listen, at the end of the day, this is a great privilege that we get to do to be able to serve him. To build, to be a part of something that is so much greater than ourselves. We're talking about, like, building and building our homes and investing in our kids and this church. And we get to do that for God's glory. What what, what better thing? To be a part of. So why would you want to promote yourself anyway? Give that up. Spend time with the Lord. Feed off the good corn and build for his glory and selflessness. Don't tear things down in your own selfishness because that's what selfishness does. It tears down. But there's one more risk that we need to look at this morning. and We see now the starvation of of the flock is, is a risk to building for the Lord. We need to be feeding off his word to even know how to build. Then selfishness within the camp and in, inside the fellowship, that's another huge risk and opposition from within. But then third, the last risk that we see in our passage this morning, and it is a huge one in our society today, and that is slavery of our families. Slavery of our families. Look at verse 5. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren. Our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. Some of our daughters are brought into bondage already, so this has already happened. Neither is it in our power to redeem them. We, we don't have the money to, to, to buy them back, so to speak. For other men have our lands and our vineyards. We've already mortgaged all that. See, the, the Jews at this time, they were, they were selling their children into slavery into servanthood to pay off their debts to be able to eat and they were unable to, to, to garner the resources to be able to, to, to get them back and you know, to buy them back and, and this was a real problem as I'm sure you can imagine and, and, and I'm sure this was even the main cause for the great cry among the wives and the mothers because this was, this was happening And when we think about this sort of thing, I think our natural response is to be shocked and and unable to believe that somebody would do such a thing. And there were certainly cultural implications and considerations for this type of activity that that is different than today. But even putting that aside, I would say that that many of those who today would be appalled by this idea. Are doing the exact same thing and don't even know it. Many of us are selling our kids and our families to this world and putting them in bondage. All for what? So they can be liked and popular? So that they can get a scholarship? So they can make it into the right school. So that they can get the perfect job. So that you can brag on them to, about them to your friends. Why? So instead of teaching them about the Lord. And how they should live their life in his service. And modeling that behavior. Selling them to the world. When they're in bondage. And that's all they know. And now it's all they desire. And they don't even know it is bondage. And listen, I, I know this may sting. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, I promise you, other than myself. And so it might hurt a little bit, but I'm telling you this because I love you. The truth is I'm describing many families in, in our Laodicean, lukewarm Christianity today. You see, at least in America, I think at least in New Philadelphia, Ohio, the problem isn't understanding what God has said and what God has called us to out of his word. What he's called us to be a part of, how he's called us to serve him and build for him. That's not the problem. We know it. For the most well, we have varying levels of, 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 of our Christian walk here, of course, and we have babes in Christ, and, and we have very mature believers. So I understand there's a wide spectrum. But as a whole, for the most part, we understand biblically what our role as, as Christian parents is, and, and Christians in general. We just don't know if we can do it. We don't know if we want to do it. We don't know if it's worth it. And we're not sure that living that life and, and walking in the Spirit and leading our families that way will take us to where we really want to go in this world. Listen, that, that's true of, of even those that, who seem to be serving the Lord. That is true of me at times. Many of us, we've, con, we've convinced ourselves that, that what we're doing is enough And yet, we're trying to serve God and mammon at the same time. But hey, at least God made the list, right? I'll give him some of my time, a little bit of my money. That's better than some people. And maybe it is. But the truth is, it's still bondage to the world. And all it has to offer. Because we don't view the world as our enemy. The Bible says that it is. The world, the devil, and your flesh. And we view the devil as our enemy. We don't view the world as our enemy, and we rarely view our flesh as our enemy. But listen, the fact is, you can't work for the Lord as a builder and get to set your own hours and parameters. And then when it gets hard, just decide to walk away because it's not worth it. And I'm sorry, that's wrong. It's the other way around. It's the only thing worth anything. Living for the Lord and doing his work and fulfilling his mission, building your home in this church for him. What else is there? All I know to say is if you're not doing that, if you're not a part of that, at some level you're wasting your life. I mean, mean, it, it might mean you have to fight. Right? That was last week. It might mean you have to fight this world for your kids. And it might mean you have to face suffering to do it. And it might mean that they have to face a little suffering too. But according to this book, which is the sole source of truth, it's worth it. It's all I know to tell you. So why do you want to spend your life investing everything you have in these 40 or 60 or 80 or maybe even 100 short years when there's an eternity after that. And in light of eternity, this life is a moment. That's what the Bible calls it. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. James calls our entire life a vapor. James 4.14, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. And yet, we know the promise of what's waiting for us if we serve him in this moment with this vapor of a life. We know that the struggles will be worth it all. Romans 8:18 8, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we know it, and yet we don't change. Tell me how we're different than the nation of Israel. Don't condemn them for selling their kids. When at the same time we're selling ours. And listen, This is not about, I I promise you, this is not about what they do and don't do. It's great, I mean this. It's great if they're involved in sports. I was involved in sports. There's a lot of great things to learn from sports. It's great if they're involved in school activities. It's good if they work hard and earn a scholarship. Truly good for them if they get a great job. I am for all of that. I'm for all of that in my kids, truly. But I'm not for it exclusively. I'm not for it if it preaches to them that those things are the highest priority in life. I'm not for it if, if, if that becomes more important than the Lord and his body. I'm not. And I never will be. Let's fight for them. Let's give them the best opportunity to succeed in all areas of life. But man, let's not leave out the spiritual side. Let's not, let's not do that. Let's get that right first. And then if everything else comes along, praise the Lord. How cool is that? How good is God? Let's do what Nehemiah 4.14 tells us to do. Let's fight for them. Let's give them to the Lord and not this world. This world will suck them up in a second and chew them up and spit them out and not think a thing about it. And they'll never know what happened. Let's give them a fighting chance. Let's not sell them into the slavery and the bondage that comes with it. And let's not starve. Let's gain spiritual nourishment from being in God's word and spending time in it. And let's give up selfishness in our homes and in here. Let's, let's give of ourselves and not take. Because those are the risks we face. And they're very real. How amazing is it? At least it's amazing to me how a book written over 2,000 years ago can be so relevant today. And I know it is because God is the author. And if God is the author, why don't we give him the position he deserves and quit living our lives for ourselves? The risks are too high. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as you're doing that, I, I, I want you to ask yourself if, if, if you think you're giving God glory with your life and if you think you're leading your family and your home the way that is, is glorifying to the Lord. And, and listen, I, under, I understand that these were some hard, there were some hard sayings in there. And, and hard for me, and, I, and, and, I, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anybody else. But I know this is a risk, and I know that all the things we looked at this morning are risk. And there risk to to the glory, the, the ability to give God glory in our life, in our homes, and in this church. And I, I just don't know any other way to say it than how it is. And, and I know that God deserves our best. The world doesn't. So let's give our best to who deserves it. And if he's not getting your best, will you start giving it to him today? Will you repent of your sin and come back to him in faith today? Or, or maybe you're out there and you, you don't know the Lord is your Savior and you've never accepted his sacrifice for you. And, and if that's the case, then, then the Bible says you don't have a relationship with God and, and that means that you're on your way to hell, to spend eternity in hell separated from God in, in eternal torment. But God made a way, praise the Lord. He died on the cross for our sins to take away Our sins is a perfect sacrifice. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart. God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You can accept Christ as your Savior and be saved right now by just praying to him, letting him know that you know you're a sinner, asking him come into your heart and into your life and save you by placing faith in his finished work on the cross. And he'll do it. That's how good he is. And if you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you. We'll be around here in the front. You can come talk to us. But let's give God, whether we know him as our personal savior or not, let's give him all that he deserves. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we just thank you for your word. And even the even the the, the, the passages like this that are the at least certainly convict me and get me to analyze all that I'm doing in my life, Lord. I, I thank you for them uh, because because I want to do it right. I want to serve you. I want to glorify you. And if that means I need to make some changes, then I need to be willing to do that. And so, so Lord, I thank you for for pointing the things out that, that are holes in my life. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone out here as well. And I pray that that your Holy Spirit is speaking to them even now. And, Lord, I I pray that you use your word to do what, what it needs to do and I I don't I don't know what that is I don't I don't know what needs to happen or or doesn't need to happen in anybody's life but I know you you do and I know the word of God can do it and so I just if that needs to happen I pray for that I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you the Lord that that your Holy Spirit would certainly be working in their life and and they would come to know you as personal Savior uh, this morning Lord we love you we ask all this in Jesus name amen